You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large here at The Post, filling in for Jonathan Capehart. Our first guest this morning is the incomparable Dan Balls, the Washington Post's chief correspondent. Good morning again, and welcome back. Michael, good morning. Nice to be back. Good to see you. Good. And we have big news uh, this morning. Donald Trump has endorsed Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, Republican congressman from Ohio, as the next Speaker of the House. As you know, according to the 1-6, the January 6th committee, uh, Jordan was involved in some of the planning of some of the events on that day. Um, Look forward a little bit and tell us what effect you think Trump's endorsement will have on the House conference or the House as a whole as uh, we go into next week's Speaker election. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a big event, obviously. Uh, You know, the former president holds such great sway over so much of the Republican Party um, that, you know, his endorsement of Jim Jordan, while not a big surprise, uh, certainly puts Jordan in the, you know, in the front runner position to be the choice of the conference to be their nominee for speaker next next week. Um, I, I think the question is, will the full conference get behind him. Um, I I think it's clear that he's going to be able to corral the rebels who helped to sink uh, Kevin McCarthy. But but the question, the bigger question now is, can he corral the moderates in the in the party uh, to support him, given that he's in a much, much different place and is a much different kind of um, leader um, than they might want? So I think that there's still uncertainty. I mean, this is this is a very, very volatile situation that that conference is is divided, uh, as we know, uh, not particularly stable, um, and given to unpredictability. So, um, you know, Steve Scalise, who's the majority leader, is certainly still in this race, and we'll see once things begin to come together next week, uh, just what the impact of the former president's endorsement is. But it's obviously a very significant uh, help for Jim Jordan in his bid. Now, all of this was set in motion by what can only be described a historic event earlier this week when uh, the House uh, removed uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, from his speakership. You wrote a piece uh, this week that suggested that his tenure was almost doomed from the start. Well, if if it takes 15 ballots uh, to become Speaker of the House, you know that you are not on a very solid foundation uh, to start that. Um, and, and the other thing that everyone knew is that uh, to get to that position, he had to make concessions to people. And one of the concessions he made was that uh, a single person could uh, put forward a, a motion to vacate the chair. Um, and uh, we saw through the course of this, this year that at crunch points, uh, Kevin McCarthy was hectored by that small band led by uh, Congressman Matt Gates from Florida. He was hectored constantly by that group. Um, now, when we had the battle over whether to raise the government's borrowing power earlier this year, uh, ultimately he cut a deal with the president of the United States and uh, got Democratic votes and they averted uh, a default. Um, and similarly, a week ago, we saw uh, in this question of whether there was going to be a government shutdown, that he made a 180-degree turn last Saturday morning uh, and agreed to put forward a bill that the Democrats could support, uh, and once again went against that group of rebels, and that's what prompted the 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 
his demise. Um, so he, he never had a real hold on the speakership. And in reality, he has had to govern in those moments with the help of Democrats, simply given the numbers in, you know, in the House and the Senate and the fact that the president is a Democrat. One of the points you made in your in your article, Dan, was that um, it was never clear that McCarthy uh, wanted to do anything with the job as speaker. He just kind of wanted to be speaker uh, and that he didn't come in with a plan to unite a very divided party or even much of an ideological uh, point of view. Uh, is that something that you expect to see continue uh, in the House? Well, in I the think speaker's in, in, role, in the speaker's role. Yeah, in part, yes, uh, Michael, I think in, in, in part because of the nature of what that House Republican conference is today, uh, because of the divisions and because of that small group of, of, of very hardliners. Uh, you know, Jim Jordan is a different uh, politician than Kevin McCarthy. Um, and he's, you know, he's been a very uh, divisive Republican leader in the, in the House for quite a while. Uh, he would bring a different style um, than McCarthy. McCarthy, you know, McCarthy's great strengths were um, his ability to raise prodigious amounts of money uh, to recruit candidates for office. Paul Kane had a wonderful piece that's in the print edition today that was online yesterday that talked about how, you know, Kevin McCarthy helped to bring in the very kinds of people who brought him down. Um, but that, that was the kind of leader he was. It was it was fixed on winning. It was fixed on uh, uh, you know gaining power and having power, um, but not necessarily with a particular idea of what he wanted to do. I mean, you and I can you know clearly remember the rise of Newt Gingrich back in the '80s and then the '94 election when he was winning. Um, he was a different kind of uh, speaker and a different kind of, of leader of the Republicans in those days and. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was never that kind of leader. You know, you also wrote um, in the piece that you think that the the events this week could cost the Republicans control of the House next year. How come? Well, one of the main arguments that that President Biden is going to use in his reelection is not simply that that President Trump is unfit for office, but that but that he would be leading uh, a group of, as he puts it, extreme MAGA Republicans. Um, and the more chaos that we see in the House of Representatives, the easier it is for for President Biden and Democrats to make that argument. Uh, there are 18 Republicans who sit in seats that were won by President Biden in 2020. Um, they are certainly, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are clearly going to be vulnerable. Um, and the more they have to answer for uh, a conference that, that looks like it's not serious about governing, um, a conference that is fighting among themselves, and a conference that uh, in some cases is demanding uh, some pretty extreme measures uh, that aren't uh, that aren't going to go anywhere in the Congress, and uh, that that makes it a recipe for the president to be able to make those arguments. So, you know, again, we're we're a very divided country. It's way too early to predict 
where the House is going to end up after the 2024 election. But I think that the more chaos that exists in the House, uh, the more difficult it will be for them to hold. It's not as though the, the Democrats have to win very many seats to, to regain the majority because the, the margins are so narrow, as they were when the Democrats were in power after they won in 2018. Um, so a, a, few, a change of a few seats can make a big difference. And I think that's the worry that Republicans face uh, as they look forward to 2024 at this point. I want to ask about one other thing. You also wrote this week about a new poll showing support by Americans for aid to Ukraine is starting to wane. What, what does that uh, data tell you? Or what did it show that you hadn't seen before? Well, I, I think it, it underscores the degree to which there is now a partisan divide within the country. Um, we've seen this in the Congress, resistance to uh, Ukraine aid. That was one of the issues that was uh, a, a sticking point last week in uh, what to do about funding the government. A uh, number of Republicans are opposed to putting, uh, to giving any more aid to Ukraine or giving it without uh, some pretty uh, strong restrictions and, and uh, provisions in it. Um, this poll underscores that. I mean, one of the things that it points out uh, is that support for aid among uh, Republicans has dropped 18 points in the last year and a few months and 30 points since the early days of the war in the, the spring of 2020. Democratic support for aid to Ukraine has held relatively steady over that same period, uh, particularly in the last year. But among Republicans, it has declined significantly. Uh, and six in 10 Republicans now say they don't think that the aid that we've already provided, the military assistance, has been worth it. Um, and so this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a, a very big issue uh, over the next few weeks as the, you know, as we get to that 45-day timetable uh, when the government's going to have to get another spending bill. Uh, Jim Jordan, if he's the Speaker of the House, has made clear he is against Ukraine aid. And this, this poll underscores why people like Jim Jordan and others feel that they have uh, the strength to push that position. Chief Washington Post correspondent Dan Balls, thank you for joining us and uh, giving us the latest. Uh, hope to see you soon. Good. Thank you, Michael. I want to continue the program now with two Post opinion columnists, George Will and E.J. Dion. Good morning, guys. Morning. Great to be with you. Uh, E.J., what did the uh, events on Capitol Hill uh, reveal to you this week about the uh, state of the Republican Party? <laughs> the, the state of the Republican Party is divided and chaotic. And by the way, Trump's intervention today endorsing Jim Jordan uh, proves that if a situation is chaotic, Trump's goal is to make it more uh, chaotic. Um, Kevin McCarthy did everything he could to appease this right flank of his party, beginning with giving them the opportunity to throw him out of office with only one member uh, calling for it. And of course, that was his ultimate undoing. Uh, because he pandered to them from the very beginning, condemning the attack on uh, the Capitol and then turning around and embracing Trump again, voting to reject Trump electors all the way down uh, to the end, uh, where the Democrats bailed him out on the vote to keep the government open, and then he blamed them the next day. And so Kevin McCarthy himself had no trust in Congress, and that's 
really why he lost. Um, but the Republican Party is simply has simply not been willing to say to this extreme right flank, um, enough, we're not with you. In fact, that's because uh, the party needs votes from the kinds of people who support people like Matt Gates. And so there's kind of a contradiction at the heart of the party uh, right now uh, that I don't think is going to be resolved no matter how this speaker fight turns out. George, you also uh, read, I'm sure this morning, the news about uh, former President Trump endorsing Jim Jordan, the Ohio Republican congressman, to be the next speaker. Uh, what do you make of that? And would you think that Jordan's uh, rise to speaker, if that's what happens, would represent a threat to democracy? No, not a threat to democracy, a threat to one of our political parties, because this is a a decision to go down the cul-de-sac they're already in. It's important to remember, by the way, that when Kevin McCarthy was a teenager in Bakersfield, California, he had a hero. And this hero was Donald Trump, the at that point just a fake billionaire in uh, New York. So he's been tethered to Donald Trump for a long time, and it's a dangerous thing to be. And he's now paid the price for that. I mean, how in the world can you govern when the magic numbers are one and five? One person can call for the vacating of the speakership and five can bring down the speaker. Now, what person in his right mind would take that job without changing those rules? Perhaps the answer to that is Jim Jordan. But let's see if in fact he does, if he has the, the weight and the foresight to change those rules. EJ, were you at all surprised that the Democrats didn't step in to save McCarthy? No, I wasn't. Not the way things turned out. Um, and by the way, the fact that Trump endorsed Jordan, I think it's a very interesting moment because a lot of Republicans, George likes baseball, so I'll use this metaphor. A lot of Republicans have tried to stay in the dugout and not take a strong stand for and certainly not a strong stand against Trump. This puts them in a difficult position. And I think it's going to be very interesting if the moderate conservatives in the House, we call them moderates, they're really moderate uh, conservatives, 18 in Biden districts, they have real potential influence. Will this Trump endorsement finally encourage them to use it? Um, the reason I wasn't surprised in the end that Democrats went the way they did is I talked to Democrats over the weekend during the uh, debt ceiling uh, mess, uh, during, I'm sorry, during the uh, shutdown um, debate. Um, and a lot of them said right off the top, including quite moderate members, we haven't been able to trust McCarthy from the beginning. Again and again, he's turned to placating the right wing. He broke his deal with Biden on the budget. We thought we weren't going to have a shutdown because of that deal. Um, but they were a couple were willing to say, look, if McCarthy is willing to deal with us, we are willing uh, to fight the chaos. Uh, Jim Himes, a moderate Democrat from uh, Connecticut, told me that. Um, McCarthy not only resolutely refused to deal with them, um, but actually went out and attacked them right before the vote. If you were looking for Democratic votes, that's not the way to do it. And I think Democrats calculated uh, time after time after time, McCarthy um, has disappointed them, has not um, really reached out in any way to them. Uh, and the result was, uh, they said, we'd rather live with the devil we don't know. George, what qualities would you like to see in the next speaker, whoever it turns out to be? 
given this moment we're in? I can tell you who I'd like to see as the next speaker. There's an, there's an obvious premier candidate in Tom Cole, a conservative Oklahoma, vastly experienced, an institutionalist who loves the House and knows how it, A, should work, and B, occasionally does work. Uh, what we're going to get instead is more performative politics. Uh, these people say that all this uproar was about spending. Now, it's not at all about spending because both parties, both parties have pledged their solemn honor that they will not address the problem of spending, which is, of course, Social Security and Medicare. All the rest is, is window dressing. The big news this week uh, we will one day look back and recognize was the fact that bond yields are rising fast. What that means is that in a year or few years, we are going to be spending a trillion dollars a year on interest payments, on debt service. And we will be borrowing a lot of that trillion dollars. We will be borrowing money to pay the interest on the money we have borrowed. We are on a calamitous fiscal trajectory. And what are we worrying about? We're worrying about Jim Jordan and eight people who have held our government hostage. It's breathtaking. EJ, do you agree with that? Are the Democrats also whistling past the graveyard here on economics and particular debt? Well, uh, first of all, it shows how conservative the Republican Party has become that given the alternatives, I agree with George Will that Tom Cole would be uh, the most interesting and competent guy uh, to be speaker uh, going back, but he's not going to get it. And I think that really is a sign of where um, the Republicans are. Uh, I know, by the way, that uh, the news today is that the economy added another uh, 336,000 jobs. Uh, and, you know, normally we hail that and say this is a strong economy. You wonder what the Fed is going to do uh, with that news. Um, and so, yeah, the bond yields are a problem. Uh, I was talking to people about this very question last week. Um, I think what you are going to see uh, over the next couple of months, uh, and uh, I'll go out on a limb here, uh, is a bond rally where I think the yields are so high that if there are any signs that the economy is going to continue to improve at this pace, people are going to realize that they're not going to get these bond yields for a long time. So I'm less concerned in the short run uh, for that. If my prediction is wrong, then George is right. <laughs> uh, let's talk also about the uh, poll that Dan uh, Balls mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that shows that support uh, in the country for military aid to Ukraine appears to be waning. Uh, is there any way to remedy that, George? And uh, do you think the Republicans will, uh, is this a for real, or do you think it, it the, the folks in Congress who represent Republicans around the country will stand up in the end for Kiev? Uh, certainly the Senate is going to be all right, I think, because uh, Mitch McConnell is uh, still in charge of the Senate and he's still a robust defender of Ukraine. It is breathtaking that the American people can be said to be suffering Ukraine weariness. We're spending, what, a fraction of 1% of our GDP for them to bleed and die. Now, the sacrifice involved by uh, uh, Americans is less than negligible. The answer is leadership. Now, we've had good policies from uh, the Biden-Blinken tandem. Blinken himself has been very articulate, 
very forthright. His position on Ukraine is approximately as long as it takes, as much as it takes. Uh, in my judgment, this is the most important event since the uh, end of the Cold War, this first major Europe war in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, if the Republican Party now reverts to something that is in its DNA, I regret to say, that is, it has been based for generations, based for generations, not in the New South, but in the old Midwest. And the old Midwest was settled by people from Scandinavia and Germany and elsewhere who had a strong isolationist streak. You remember after the Second World War, Mr. Republican was Senator Taft of Ohio, who was very skeptical of collective security, very skeptical about uh, NATO and even the Marshall Plan. So th th this is a, a recessive gene in the Republican Party, and it's uh, resurfacing again. I like the genetic analysis. EJ, do you agree that it's DNA, or is there something else that maybe isn't uh, is just more viral in the Republican Party at the moment that is part of the picture? Uh, there's that's, certainly that's, that's, uh, the that's history creating is, the opposition to Ukraine. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean the history certainly is, as George uh, suggested. Um, many historians have said the old Republicans weren't isolationists; they were Asialationists. Hard to pronounce that word. Um, because they wanted to give all the attention to Asia and China uh, and forget about Europe. And a lot of these people are, again, Asialationists, saying they're really tough on China, but they don't want to do what we're doing in Ukraine. But of course, our walking away from Ukraine would strengthen China. Um, I think we have to be a little bit more optimistic in the following sense. The entire Republican Party is not against aid to Ukraine. There uh, is uh, another gene in the Republican Party that uh, still has um, a, a kind of democratic, small d democratic commitment, um, and you're seeing it in the Senate. Um, and it would certainly be a catastrophe if the new leadership in the House went with this growing, but I still think um, minority opinion in the Republican Party. I think we will eventually get to a, uh, will, the Congress will eventually pass aid to Ukraine. But it'll be very painful, very complicated, and it shouldn't be complicated. Let's move to the growing uh, crisis along the southern border. This week, the Biden administration uh, moved to say that it would build more barriers at the border. Um, uh, this is a reversal for the White House. Uh, uh, but will it be enough, George, to stem the public hostility about what's happening? I don't know, but from... President Biden's point of view, it had better because the southern border is, in my judgment, far and away the biggest threat to his reelection. What it communicates to the American public is a part of the theme that uh, what has just played out in the House of Representatives has communicated, which is a general chaos, a general absence of governance. Everyone knows two things. Control of one's national borders is an essential attribute of national sovereignty. And B, this is a humanitarian crisis that's going to envelop cities, is enveloping cities, far from the border. So if the, if, uh, if the uh, Biden administration cannot get control of this, then we will not have a rational immigration policy. Everyone knows a third thing, which is control of the border is a prerequisite for getting Americans to talk about rational policies. Once the border is controlled, 
you will find, if the polls continue as they are, a majority of Republicans favor for the 10 and a half million undocumented immigrants in this country, favor not only amnesty, but a path to citizenship. The American people, again, are not representative, uh, represented by the harsh anti-immigrant feeling that is being uh, expressed and heard and magnified by uh, real and social media. But control of the border is essential for a rational policy going forward and for the re-election of Mr. Biden. EJ, talk to us a little bit about uh, how big a shift this is for the White House. And and also, do the Democrats have a blind spot on the immigration problem? And if so, why? I don't think there's a blind spot. I think there was a correct moral rep uh, repugnance to some of the things that uh, President Trump did uh, in particular, the family separation uh, policies. I think the Biden administration from the beginning has known that this was an issue they had to deal with. Uh, it went on the back burner. There was a period where the border did seem under control. They were hoping they had gotten by this problem for a while, maybe till the next election. Uh, and now it turned out they didn't. So this is this border fence is not the first move they've made. They also made a move uh, on behalf of uh, uh, New York City and other areas uh, to allow immigrants to work. Again, you're, what, I think what you're seeing is the Biden administration uh, decide they have to deal with this problem. The difficulty is there is a majority, as George suggests, lots of polling shows this, for a rational immigration policy that accepts that we are going to have and need immigrants and we need um, a, a, an orderly legal process so people can come into the country, immigrants can come into the country, um, and we need to control illegal immigration. But because this debate is dominated by nativist voices, whom I agree are a minority, uh, it's been impossible to have a rational immigration debate. And this is really an inside the Republican Party. If you want to sort of put the origins of Trumpism on a year, there are a lot of places you could start. But one was when the Republicans voted down uh, President George W. Bush's immigration uh, reform proposal. And ever since then, we have not been able to have a rational debate over what to do about this. And Last question, George. Do you think do you think the American public is more closely aligned with Donald Trump's view about the border or Joe Biden's? I don't think they know what Biden's is, and therefore, in the default position, I think a lot of them are aligned with Trump. But what the American people have to be told in no uncertain terms is that as the population ages, and as the fertility rate declines, we need immigrants more than the immigrants need us to replenish our, our declining workforce to work and throw off the revenues to pay the bills for Social Security and Medicare. I know I sound like a, a one-trick pony here. Sorry about that, but this is all baked in the cake. Demography is destiny for a welfare state, and the demographic facts are ominous, and immigration is a solution. As you're both great. I really appreciate you joining us this morning, but we're out of time. Thank you both, E.J. Dion and George Will, for joining us. Have a great day, guys. You too. Good to be with you, Michael. Thanks. And George.
Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.